Welcome back to The Bigger Picture, Perspectives from Prison. Jack and I are thrilled to finally release the first of our conversations with our guest today. As we like to do, we'll let him take it away. Yeah, my name is uh, Ambus Ray Davis III. I'm in, currently incarcerated in Iowa State Prison, serving a life sentence without parole. Uh, I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, and I came to Iowa in 2004 and was wrongfully convicted of a crime that with no physical evidence, not even an evidence log. So uh, I'm basically a victim of a crooked system. Really excited to hear your story. So I, the first question we have today is so a little statistic. African-Americans are incarcerated at a rate five times that of white Americans. Have, how, have you, how have you personally seen communities that are unfairly targeted by law enforcement suffer from high rates of arrest? Well, First, I wanted to touch on, especially here in Iowa, um, the racial disparities is very, very uh, terrible. Uh, Iowa's racial disparity is number three in the country, uh, uh, following behind New Jersey and Wisconsin, and Iowa's third in Minnesota and Vermont, top off the top five. And although Iowa's less than 4% of uh, Iowa's population is African-American, 25.4% 25.4% of the state's prison population are African American. On the other hand, whites make up 90.6% of IU's population. However, only 66% of prison populations are white. And I've come to see that prison has become the new modern day slave trade. And I say that because in 1865, the uh, president Abraham Lincoln abolished the institution of slavery with the 13th Amendment. However, he wrote that people could be enslaved and incarcerated if they had been duly convicted of a felony. Therefore, I feel that, you know, in the African-American community, we have been disproportionately incarcerated at that rate due to the war on crime and the war on drugs that was given by Ronald Reagan in the 80s and uh, George Bush in the 90s. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I mean, it's even a pattern that you see go back, you know, to the days right after Reconstruction, when you know all these kind of phony vagrancy laws were set in place and only ever enforced against African Americans. And uh, you know, um, you know, I've, I've been reading this book, American Prisons, by Shane Bauer, uh, and and he develops this history of convict leasing that existed throughout the Jim Crow era, and uh, you know continued up until right before the war on drugs. Um, and now it's, um, I think the pattern that's kind of developed is that we, instead of leasing out convicts to do manual free labor, we have kind of a warehousing of people that the system determines should not uh, participate in our society. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, the, the, the slave trade in America was for free labor, and Abraham Lincoln said it in 1865 or maybe 64, I may not be quoting the dates right, the years, but he stated that if he could win the presidency and not have to abolish the institution of slavery, could keep slaves in slave, slavery, that he would. However, it was financially and economically impossible for the North to continue to win with the South having free labor. So, therefore, he abolished the institution of slavery and rewrote slavery in that same 13th Amendment by enslaving those that are duly convicted of a felony. 
And when people come to prison, they are you giving free labor or pennies on the dollar for labor, and it's the same exact institution that was abolished in the 13th Amendment, just rewritten into the prison industry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think I think one of the big issues that kind of adds this whole prison complex in the U.S. is the fact that upon leaving, there's less opportunities and this, there's this revolving door. So I think I think once a community goes down that path where you get a percentage involved like in crime, you, you kind of go down this route where there's this over-incarceration of people being over-policed and excessive sentencing and no opportunities once these, these people are released. So uh, I think there's a, there's a major problem that was kind of established. Like a circular kind of just movement of control. We're kind of interested in hearing about, you know, when you moved to Iowa in 2004, did you, uh, in the community where you lived, were there a lot of, you know, engagements in the community with law enforcement? Did you notice that that was, um, you know, a pattern that um, was regularly held that law enforcement was targeting, you know, primarily black people? Well, I can't say that in Iowa because um, where I come from, I'm from a big city in Dallas, Texas, and I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas before I came to Iowa. And, you know, I was I was used to seeing officers and police because of the community that I lived in. So, therefore, when I came to Iowa, it, was, it wasn't as prevalent and, and, and clear for me to see that until I became a part of the actual prison industry in Iowa. Did I actually recognize how disproportionately African Americans and Native Americans and Hispanic Americans were disproportionately treated and convicted of crimes in the state. But I did I did want to touch on, if I could, the, you know, a lot of times we can talk about problems, but we also need to talk about solutions. And a lot of times no one understands that prison is all about money. You know, this the, the criminal justice reform issue is not economically sound and economically okay for those that are capitalizing on the fiduciary aspect of prison industry. And my question is, you know, is is the cure which is incarceration worse than the actual disease which is crime? And my answer is, is the cure is worse than the disease because it takes just less money to educate an individual. And a lot of convicted criminals that are convicted of major crimes start out in the juvenile system as teenagers and young kids. And instead of incarcerating mm-hmm. those young kids in juvenile, putting them on probation, putting them on parole, wouldn't it be even more intelligent and better for our economics in this country to educate them and send them to a four-year college or send them to some type of school that will give them a trade and rehabilitate them instead of sending them to a juvenile system that's going to mentally enslave them, corrupt them, teach them to be better criminals, and send them back out into a community only to be a part of the revolving door and not part of the rehabilitation of an individual. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think it's, it's a improper allocation of resources from the government um, funding jails and supporting, like, uh, I guess the carceral system versus investing in education of these communities. So I think one of the things that people were calling for during the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement was this call to, to abolish the police and get rid of this over-policing and the abusive law um, enforcement, I guess, forces outside of prison. So one of the things that we kind of lo- want to look at critically is you say, they say abolish the police, but what would that look like? I know you talk about investing in education in these community-based projects. So 
I think I think one of those solutions could be, I guess, abolish the police, but I do think that it is reinvesting in the future through education and supporting opportunities for people to break the cycle. Of- right. Um, I understand that there's a need for police. There's a need for order. However, you know, I have some statistics as far as, you know, Los Angeles and Austin uh, took away $150 million from their police department. New York City, where you guys live at, they took away $1 billion. And in D.C., they took away $15 million. And I don't think that the police need to be abolished. I think that the money that they're taking from police departments need to be reinvested into the community through education, as you stated, through uh, uh, community building, better economics, better uh, uh, food, better housing, so forth and so on. No, I just that's absolutely, absolutely true, and I think your point that it costs more money to just, um, you know, warehouse people convicted of crimes instead of, you know, educate them and provide services that would more meaningfully impact rehabilitation into society, you know, achieve the the stated goals of prisons in the United States, but, you know, in reality, they're not achieving any of those goals. I think that point, your point about, you know, none of this stuff changing without the economic pressure being put on, back to your comment about Abraham Lincoln, it becoming economically unfeasible to uh, allow the South to continue holding slaves. There wasn't any moral care. Um, same thing about uh, convict leasing. You know, that, that was only stopped once it became economically unfeasible to do, uh, continue it. Without, without the, you know, the powers that be, the, the lobbies that control this prison, the prison systems throughout the United States, I think there has got to be some way to, you know, make it economically unfeasible to continue holding people. Well, you know, in, in regards to the police, police have a very, very, very unique situation going on, and I think they need to be trained a lot longer, they need to be educated a lot longer, and they need to have more education behind what it means to be a police officer. Because let's take a look at this. Police have a responsibility of people's lives because they have, they can incarcerate a person and they can take a person's life with legal justification. Now, let's think about that. You can actually enslave a person, and in my eyes, I feel kidnapped. When you take a person against their will, regardless of a law, regardless if they've done anything, when you take them against their will, that's kidnapping by law. So if the police have the ability and the responsibility to protect people, and they have the ability to incarcerate and to take life with legal justification, that's a very, very, very important factor that human beings in this country need to realize. Yeah, I think I think something else that can be looked at is uh like from the training background, I know that there's there's not like a four year long program to become a police officer. I know that it's not a it's not a job that requires a ton of training, but also right. at the same time, what do you think about uh like the need to have like mental health professionals within the field to kind of de escalate some of these things that are made violent because there's not proper training provided? I know that there's the mental illness rate within prisons is it's higher than the general population because uh, crimes can be perpetuated by people that aren't mentally healthy. But there is not there's nothing in the field for people to kind of bypass the the legal side, but kind of just treat the mental health issue of it. Well, they've taken the mental health people that are mentally unstable and need help, 
and have made them warehouse warehouse people as well. There are so many guys in here that should be in state mental hospitals, that should not be in prison, that should be getting help professionally, and those guys also fall victim to the prison industry, the prison industry complex. There are men in here that are mentally slow. There's guys in here that are so medicated they can barely walk. There's guy, and it's it's sad because they need help and they're not getting help. They're only getting medication and stuck inside of a cell. So the importance of having mental health help out there, they've closed down all the state hospitals for the most part. You know, back in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s, they had mental health hospitals for people. Where are those hospitals at now? Where is the help at now? They have none of that for the most part, and they warehouse those guys in here. Yeah, I think it goes back to the shortcoming of funding those projects versus putting those people in, in another environment that uh, it's more of a catch-all, and I think it's a disservice to every side of it. Yeah, I think I think that one of the morally unjust things in the last 40 years is this, this emphasis on crime prevention and punishment rather than, you know, community building, and that is reflected in every year's state budget, the fact that policing and prisons get significantly more funding uh, on a yearly basis than, you know, all of these services that are provably valuable. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I wanted to go back to the concept of the police officer not being educated or trained in four mm -hmm. years. They're the only – I can't think of any other occupation where a person has a responsibility of another human being's life, can take another human being's life, or take a person from society in the physical form, and they don't have to have an education. See, a lot of a lot of times these these officers don't come from the communities that they're serving as well. So I think there's a complete disconnect between like the uh the legal system and the justice system and the communities that they're serving and I think that I think that's wrong and I think that without being integrated into this, the actual communities that they're serving is just gonna lead to conflict. Correct. Correct. Because when a person's from a certain area in a community, they speak a certain language. They understand the people in that community. So how could you take a Japanese man that speaks Japanese and put him in America and never speaks English and think that he's going to be able to communicate with the people in America? It's it's not possible. He has to learn the language. He has to learn the culture in order to understand how to navigate around in America and vice versa. So it's the same concept as the police people coming from other communities, coming into these poor communities, these Hispanic these African-American communities, and don't understand the culture. They don't understand the language. They don't understand the territory, the gangs, the, the things, and why people do what they do. So how is it that they can meet a person on an eye-to-eye -eye basis when they don't understand the people that they're actually taking away from their families, that they're policing, that they're putting in the back of their cars, that they're putting up against the wall and putting handcuffs on them and questioning them? How can they communicate with someone they don't understand? Absolutely. And, it, and it, you know, your point is even stronger in the fact that the people that have the first contact One minute remaining. Are, are the people with least training. You know, I, I want to become a lawyer. I need three years of training before I could ever represent someone arrested by the police, whereas the police need, what, a few months? Yeah, that, it's, that's how. Uh, it seems backwards almost. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a hell of a point, and uh, I think that's a well point taken.
That's a question that all of America needs to figure out.